Thank you. Thank you so very much. Good morning. What we're doing is uh, turning in our Bibles now to Psalm 8 as we're continuing a series in the book of Psalms. We're selecting various Psalms, and we're noticing that there are five books to the Psalms, and they are connected to one another, and there's an escalation where book one leads into book two and so on. And to fully understand book two, you've got to work through book one and the likes. We've seen that Psalms 1 and Psalm 2 are your gateway into the Psalms. Psalm 1 has to do with the fact that it is a Torah psalm, teaching psalm. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm pointing towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's also an escalation that occurs psalm by psalm where David is giving us further and further advanced notice that something's gone wrong. There's, there's tension, there's conflict, there's pushback against the messianic plan of God. So there's this anti-messianic, anti-Christ element that is drawn out of these psalms. Well, now you've made your way up to Psalm 8 this morning. And there in the heart of Psalm 8, in fact, you're still dealing with the tensions that, that David is experiencing, pushback, those around him. And when things are going, around, going wrong around you, it's time to look above you. And that's what David is about to do. He's about to get his perspective. And this morning, if you're feeling the tensions of everything around you, it's time to look above you and to begin to consider the God who is sovereign over all. This is a creation psalm. And as we've noted this morning in your insert, and I hope you keep that in front of you as we work through this together, what you will find is that there are three creation psalms that occur just before what is known as an acrostic psalm. In other words, an acrostic psalm is a psalm that follows the order of the Hebrew alphabet in the progression of verses. And so creation psalm 8 comes before acrostic psalm 9. Creation Psalm 24 between, before acrostic Psalm 25 and so on. What I want to be able to say is that just as there is a design to God's word, so there is a design to God's world. Just as there is a design to God's word, so there is a design to God's world. And so what you want to do is to check out the designer label. You want to be able to see the fact that God endorses his word, puts his stamp of approval upon this world, and allows us now to gain greater insights so that when things are going wrong around us, it's time to look above us and gain the perspective needed, which is exactly now what David does here in Psalm 8. Because notice with me the superscription. The superscription in this case begins with the fact that this is to the choir master, but it's according to the getith, or the gittith. Now the gittith was a musical instrument, and it was a musical instrument made or used in, in the Philistine city of Gath. Gath was from where Goliath came. And so David, when he grappled with the whole idea of how do I stand before this large being created by God, and where Goliath was taunting David in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, 
the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. When you're stressed by those and by what's happening around you, lift your eyes to who and what is above you. That is what David now does for us in Psalm 8. Notice how it begins. You've just sung it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, what we want to do is to be able to explore these verses together. To be able to understand the significance of what's being taught here. It's profound. In a culture that devalues life, promotes abortion, you, you are talking about the significance of humanity. And when we come in contact with those that are experiencing angst over the nature of the climate and over the environment. We have opportunity to invest in a conversation about the sovereignty of God. And so the significance of humanity, the sovereignty of God, you've done it right here in Psalm 8. You got us thinking. You've got us worshiping. You've got us focusing upon you. That's what's needed. So, Father, the moments to come are important. As we now explore this eighth psalm, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. And we're praying these things to again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me as we explore this painting that appears now on the screen. It was developed in 1668. The artist, his name was Jan Vermeer, part of the Dutch Reformed culture, where they were beginning to paint and develop portraits of various scientists. They saw holistically, and rightly so, there is no separation between Christianity and science. God is Lord over all. And so they saw the world and the word as proclaiming the sovereignty of God. 
What I want you to see here as you explore this painting with me is, first of all, notice very carefully the light versus dark imagery. It's a contrast. Ask yourself the question, where is the dark coming from? Where is the light coming from? Well, the darkness is from within, but I want you to see here the light is coming from without. In other words, light coming from nature is now making a statement to this man who is beginning to ponder the significance of this universe and how it's designed, how it is put together. But I also want you to notice that there is a painting within the painting. Just above this astronomer's shoulder, slightly to the right, what I want you to see is that there is a painting there and when inspected carefully, this is known as the finding of Moses. Moses was viewed at that time as a supreme avenue of wisdom. Now when you and I are exploring the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs, Solomon, we're exploring the wisdom of God as it relates to the world and through his word. And the word explains the world. But there's still something more here. On one hand, a statement is made regarding the word of God with that painting that's there. Finding, finding of Moses. But look carefully at what this man is investigating. On one hand, he's got his hand placed upon uh, a model of the universe. But with his other hand now, he's got a book open. What is that book? The book was entitled, The Investigation of the Stars. And the chapter that he's referencing is entitled, The Inspiration from God. Now, what we want to do at this point is to be able to draw out for the mindset of the individual who is experiencing angst over climate change, in the trends of the environmental movements of today, we've got an opportunity to carry on a conversation. There is a threefold timeline that I want to develop for you as we're thinking this way. In the Genesis account, you and I are told that when God created the world again and again and again, he said, it is good, didn't he? You can read about it there. But something has gone wrong. And I believe a lot of the people that are, that are deeply traumatized by what has gone wrong need to examine very carefully Romans chapter 8, verse 22, for it states that, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, due to original sin, we move from what I will call the state of goodness to, second of all, the state of groaning. And so there are those that come up with political solutions and those that come up with all kinds of tax solutions, but is there another way in which Scripture would address this? We'll delve into that. But I would say the third G as you move from good to groan is glory. Because in Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, God speaks in terms of the future about a new heaven and a new earth. 
So what you want to do as you're carrying on conversations and your burden for somebody's heart coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you deal with the whole subject of creation, but then you move from old creation to new creation, and then move from new creation to the renewed creation that comes in Isaiah 65 and 66, and you have taken them on the timeline from the good to the grown to the glorified new heavens, new earth. Now you pick it up. And there is this individual who in his Dutch reform culture is now acknowledging the fact that God is sovereign, not only through his word, but sovereign over this world. And what we're going to do this morning with Psalm 8 is to simply draw three considerations here. I want you to see how the word and the world come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we don't separate science from Christianity. But we realize that Christianity was, in fact, the cultural petri dish, if you will, out of which scientific investigation flourished. Now, the first of the three considerations comes out of verse 1, 2, and then verse 9. That as you and I, as we consider God's design in the universe... This morning I want to begin with you by uh, noting how God's majestic name is revealed. Notice how verse 1 begins. O Lord. Now, O Lord, it's capitalized. O Lord, you can almost feel the exhale at this point. And when he says Lord in the Hebrew, capital L-O-R-D, of course, you know this by now, is Yahweh. It's the covenantal relational name for God. People feel a disconnect from God. What you want to be able to do is to say this is a highly connected God who sent Jesus Christ in this world to die for our sins. And so you've got a relational God you want to draw out for them as you're involved in in looking for on-ramps in the climate, environmental tensions of the hour. But I want you to notice with me, he begins, O Lord, doesn't he? But then he says, Our. He's drawing you in. Drawing everybody in. He is our Lord. But you say, Gary, I'm noticing now it's small case, capital L, but then... Small letters, O-R-D, why? Hebrew word Adonai. That has to do with the royal name for God. His regal status. He is, he is royalty. He is king over all of the universe, you see. And now you say to yourself, and David was king of Israel. And the shepherd king who would be out at night exploring the stars at night, reflecting upon the sovereign God who had anointed him to be king. You and I know that there was pushback in 1 Samuel coming from King Saul. There would be pushback from from Absalom in 2 Samuel. And the degree of pushback was a degree against the messianic line trying to thwart the true Messiah from coming into this world through the promised plan as established through David. David sighs, I'll bet. Oh Lord, but now he draws you and draws me and draws the world in. Our Adonai, our royal emperor, 
our sovereign king, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so he's tying that second name for God, L-O-R-D, our Lord, to majesty. He's praising God's majesty as one who has been given majesty by God, the shepherd king. Now, the majesty of God's voice is here in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 30. They felt threatened when they heard the royal one of the universe. They felt terrified as they were attacking Israel. But in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, there's this theophany where God's majesty cloaks the skies. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. And I thought about that. How majestic is your name in all the earth. During the French Revolution, there was an individual who was totally and completely opposed to Christianity. His name is Carrier. He was having Christians put to death. And he went on record saying that we will tear down your churches and wipe out the name of your God. I love the response. You will have to leave the stars. And the stars will teach our children to spell from them the name of our God. Teachers, it's an opportunity, particularly those that teach science, and get your students to purchase a telescope, tripod, set it on the lawn, and let them begin to ask questions. What am I looking at? Look for patterns in the sky. Look for the ways in which configurations are meant to be discovered. And through it all, what you're trying to do is to bring the designer label, the name of all names, to the forefront. And you've got to be able to draw out the relationship of the creation to the creator. The designer stands behind his design. His signature is on it. So much so that what you find here in Psalm 8 is what is known in poetry as an inclusion, an inclusio. Notice how it begins. Notice how it ends. It bookends. It begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How does it end? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then you've got to bring the name of God into the conversations as you're talking about the design, and the designer. You know, when you're in D.C. and you're checking out the Declaration of Independence and you're smiling as you think about that first, that first name, John Hancock, the first to be put down on the, on the document. And he did it with such a bold signature. Quote, So the king does not have to put on his glasses when he reads my name. That's courage. 
But what we've got is the king of kings and lord of lords who doesn't need glasses. And what he does is that he looks out over his universe. He establishes the galaxies. And now you are caught up in the majesty of it all, O Lord. He's relational. He is our Lord. He is royal. Relational, yet royal. You exclaim, how majestic then is your name in all the earth. You know, the people in Babel, when they were attempting to be able to build something technologically that would bring glory to themselves, you and I are told here that in, in, in Genesis chapter, chapter 11, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in where? The heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There is a pushback against God's name by inserting humanity's name. O Lord, our Lord, however, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You're still in verse 1. The Hebrew word for glory, kabod, means literally heavy. Which means then, we don't take God lightly. There is a gravitational force, in effect, a weightiness to this name. You have set your kabod above the heavens. But then here is something incredibly fascinating. You're up now to verse 2. There's pushback against the messianic promise where there is this one you and I know as Jesus who's going to come from the line of David, king of kings, lord of lords. David looks around, sees the saws of this world, sees the Philistines, sees the Goliaths, onward into 2 Samuel, sees Absalom feels the pushback and the tensions and the conflict that are in, invading his, his well-being. So what does he say? Okay, not only do I look above and see God's glory, but now I look around and hear the expressions of God's glory. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And who used that passage of Scripture so effectively? Your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did. Where what you and I find is that after his entry into Jerusalem, there was pushback. The children were, were crying out in the streets, Hosanna to the Son of David. More than irony there. And so the religious establishment was, well, the Bible says, indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? I love the way Jesus responds. Yes. I can almost see him lifting his eyebrows just slightly, you know, yeah. And then the irony of the question to these religious leaders. And by the way, have you never read 
out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Matthew chapter 21, verse 16. And that's why, as I've sometimes said on Sanctity of Human Life Sundays, it was not ironic that when a bill was being debated on the Hyde Amendment and so on in the Senate, and the pro-abortion population was there, and there was incredible pushback, right between presentations, there was silence, and all of a sudden, from the gallery, a baby cried. Heads turned. You see what God is doing? He's invading the space of those who would push back against his sovereign plan. You have an opportunity, you see, in this day and age to be able to draw attention. And draw people's attention from creation to creator. And when they don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can talk about, yes, it was good, but now, yes, it does groan. I'm with you there. But it will be glorified, so we're caught right now in the tension of the now and the not yet. But in the meantime, let's begin with the fact that just as there's old creation people, there are new creation people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And you move them from their groan to their future glorified state when they put faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then you introduce furthermore the idea of the new heavens and the new earth of Isaiah chapter 65 and 66. And out of all this then, you've got a worldview approach to the way in which you can holistically pull together word and world that brings glory to God's name and the way in which you look for on-ramps to carry on intelligent conversations with people experiencing angst in this day where they are so fearful regarding matters of climate. And a baby cries from the gallery in the silence of the Senate chambers. And you're on now. And to the second of three considerations. Where you're looking for the designer behind the design, you consider, first of all, how God's majestic name is revealed in 1, 2, and 9. Second of all, notice with me how God's personal care is contemplated. How God's majestic name is revealed. Now how God's personal care is contemplated. And so here's that moment where David, you can almost picture this, this shepherd king. And he's feeling the stress. He's playing, he's experienced with uh, Jewish cops and robbers with Saul, so it seems. He's racing back and forth across the fields trying to hide from this king. Takes his breath, deep breath. And so looking around, it's time to look up. He invites you, he invites me. When I look at your heaven, The work of your fingers. This is anthropomorphic language at this point. Then adds, the moon 
the stars which you have set in place. Don't leave it there. If you teach sciences, don't leave it there. Find strategic ways then to pose a question. Don't allow for disconnect to remain in a disconnected world. You've got a Yahweh, O Lord. You've got a King, our Lord. Now, create the connection here. What is man that you are mindful of him? So mindful he'll send Jesus in embryonic form in Bethlehem to go to the cross to die for you and me. That's how mindful he is to create new creation people. And the son of man that you care for him. And now what fascinates me at this point is that the word for care in verse 4 in Hebrew means literally to visit. That the Son of Man would visit? And you say, yeah. And he did through the line of David when Jesus Christ came into this world to die on Calvary. So you pull out your telescope. You think about the significance of it all. So let's go to Florence for a second. Florence, Italy. And there in Florence, Italy, what you and I find is that there to this day is a modified spyglass. Galileo's. Now, Galileo, when he began to promote the idea that the world does not revolve around the earth. He got pushback from the religious establishment. And they saw a, a disconnect between science and religion. They were caught up in the old biases of Aristotelian philosophy. What he was in essence doing is saying, with a Christian worldview, Look into the telescope for crying out loud and see that the sovereign God has established this world in such a way that makes sense. There's uniformity as well as diversity. Ponder the planetary movements. Consider the strategic way in which God works. And then, while you're at it, Galileo might say, um, sing along with Hillsong. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so lie. I can see your heart and everything you've made, every burning star, a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praise, so will I. Kepler. 
who had correspondence with Galileo. Keep that telescope mind in front of you there. Because it was an unforgettable night in 1577. Mom took her five-year-old son to the top of a hill to view the bright path of a comet. The boy, five years of age, Johannes Kepler. And that night, his life force was set. Now, he had some challenging times. His father went missing in action during a war when he was 16. His wife died, lost several children, persecuted by the Catholic Church. And furthermore, his, his mentor, Tycho Brahe, he likewise declined in health so that they could no longer communicate. What struck me about the biography of Kepler, he was schooled not only in mathematics and astronomy, but also in theology, and he wanted to be a pastor. He wanted to find a way where he could take the idea of the world and the idea of the word and fit everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he, he wrote the epitome of Copernican astronomy and sent a copy of it to Galileo, whose telescope you're, you're looking through, who responded that he had likewise been um, part of the Copernican movement for several years. When Kepler passed away and was buried, he said, as if God was honoring the astronomer's lifelong dedication to glorifying him through the stars, the study of the stars, Several witnesses were reported that fireballs, now known as meteors, fell from heaven that evening. It's as if the creation was endorsing the praise given to the Creator. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you literally, from the Hebrew, would choose to visit him? in an embryonic form. Jesus Christ came into this world. And we see the stamp of the designer. And we ponder the significance of that movement towards the cross. Creation, new creation, new heavens, new earth. Well, we're up to verse 5. And when you and I now make our way to verse 5 at this point, we've considered how God's majestic name is revealed, how God's personal care, his visit is contemplated. But now thirdly, how God's created order is managed. You have made him, speaking of God with us, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor crowned, take it back up to the word majestic, further up to the word L, small lettering, O-R-D, royal name for God. And what we now have is delegated royalty, where humanity now is given the responsibility to understand God is the owner, and we are the managers of God's creation. So we've got to enter into conversations with people who are stressed out over the matter of climate matters and so forth, environmental matters, 
and offer a biblical perspective as to how we don't divorce science from Christianity, but rather everything comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So you're coming down 8th Street, and lo and behold, as you reach Fountain Park in the city of Sheboygan, a couple of people jump out with their placards, and they are holding up signs that say climate justice. First-hand experience. As I was on my way to get some documents notarized. And I'm thinking about the way in which God notarized his name on this universe. And as I was returning to the office, I was thinking about the ways in which we, in these various services and online as well, can find an on-ramp by which we can enter into this discussion. How do we do so? Because they are on to the fact that this world is groaning. But they don't understand the before and the after. They got the groan. But what we have to do is to enlarge the perspective. Wedding together all that we know. We move from good at creation to the groan because of the fallenness of humanity to the future glorified state, new heavens, new earth, Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah 66, and now you've got an on-ramp to begin to talk about Jesus Christ who brings new creation living into an old creation world and allows you and I to anticipate the day when all things, all things are made new. You have given him dominion. You're up now to verse 6. Over the works of your hands, God is saying, and he's extracting the word dominion right from the Genesis account. We're in Genesis chapter 1. What God had done when it came to the created order of all things. God blessed them. Said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, we are not the owners and God the manager. God is the owner, we are the managers, sinful managers that we are, and so in the sinful world we are sinful managers, but we are understanding the designer and the design, we understand the good to the grown to the glory, we pull it all together then and we get people to begin to think about how to move from the grown to the glory, and it comes to beginning with a personal relationship with Yahweh found there in verse 1, who sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. He cares. He came to visit. And so you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then to add all sheep, oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, you see. And you pull all this together. And you're overawed by what God has here. And you're pondering what God says here. And so whether it be above or whether it be below, God reigns over all. Lord Kelvin, he developed the instrument which made the Atlantic Cable possible. He was a scientist and he was a believer. And in 1858, he supervised its laying and on August 5th of 1858, you know what the first message was that was sent from America to Europe? Europe and America are united by telegraphic communication. 
Glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace and good will towards men. And you think about that. And then, lo and behold, you hear third day singing, Lord of all creation, of water, earth, and sky, the heavens are your tabernacle, Glory to the Lord on high. God of wonders, beyond our galaxy, you are holy, holy. The universe declares your majesty. You are holy, you are holy. Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth to which in inclusio form, David responds, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's stand together. And so, Father, what we see is that Christianity, in many ways, was the Petri dish out of which the great scientific discoveries came to be. We thank you for the way in which the early astronomers, the great scientists, had a view of the sovereignty of God and the significance of humanity and didn't separate the two. And you don't either. There was a visitation where Jesus Christ came in via Bethlehem to die on Calvary so we might become new creation people and you take our groan and you bring about glory. And for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.